In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together again today to understand, hopefully, where Christianity came from and why it broke off, or did it break off, from Judaism, or whether Judaism took a different path willingly. So we ask that the Holy Spirit open our minds and our hearts to hear what you want us to hear, to understand what you want us to understand. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Is this sounding better to all of you out there? Okay. Okay. Today we're going to do a review of David and then get into a summarized version of Solomon. And a lot of people have said to me over over the years, not just uh, recently or from this class, but over the years, people have said, why is this all important? Well, you've got to understand the place of David in the life and the role of the Jewish people. He was looked upon in the same level as Moses, and to some degree even greater than Abraham. And so we have to try to put ourselves in their shoes to see what is so great about David that we uh, have to constantly think about him. And if you recall, even in the, the New Testament, there are times when David's name or memory come up. For example, um, in the blind man that is calling out uh, to Christ, when Christ is moving along and there's a lot of people around, and this blind man calls out, Son of David, have pity on me. And he calls out more than once, and then people try to shut him up, you know, because he's a blind man. He's sort of chastised because uh, his blindness is obviously, to them, uh, a sign of his great sinfulness. Well, that's not the case, and Jesus actually explains that, or uses that as a, uh, an occasion to explain that illness and misfortune are not necessarily attributed to sinfulness, as it was common to, to be thought of at that time. And so the blind man constantly yells out, uh, Son of David, and of course, Jesus uses that as a, as a training point. Why is he calling me Son of David? And he wants the people around them, him at that time to realize that David was an important person. And why? And so that's what we're going to get into this morning. Uh, some of the things that David accomplished. And I'm not going to get into all of the wars. That really is not important to us in our objective of trying to connect Judaism to Christianity. What we want to do is to take the important points that have been brought into our way of thinking. And there are many of them. Um, 
sometimes they're a little obscure or hidden, and we don't always think about them. But I want to go into uh, some of the details here. Now, this is a kind of a review because we've talked a lot about this in uh, the previous two classes. But uh, I want to summarize this and then go on to Solomon. And then from there, next week, I want to get into both the kings. And you have to understand, there's two sides of that history of Judaism from the successor of Solomon, Rehoboam, his son, and how the kingdom split up. And the sinfulness, the apostasy of the people just exploded, particularly in the north. And it's important that you understand why, because God could have just wiped them out, and he did to a certain degree, with the Assyrians wiping out most of the northern uh, tribes uh, of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, remember, and I'm getting ahead of my story a little bit, but I want you to see as you read uh, the second book of Kings, at least up to around chapter 10, uh, how the kings really took off on their own, totally ignoring the teachings of Moses and really the teachings of David and, and Solomon to whatever degree they were. <clears throat> but God could have wiped all of those people out and started over again as he did say back in the time of Noah and the ark. Uh, and he did to some degree with the Assyrians taking over and wiping out a lot of uh, the northern tribes. <clears throat> but rather than doing that, it would only have gotten rid of something. It wouldn't have built on the need or what should have been done. So to counterbalance the evil of these kings, he brings in the prophets. And this is the time of the prophets. The prophets really came into prominence after Solomon, and they died out right after the Babylonian exile um, and the captivity of the Babylonians ceased. So there was a period of almost 500 years when the prophets came in as a very important counterbalance to the evils of the kings. So I want, as you read ahead, I want you to start seeing that. And then next week we're going to get into uh, a very brief review of the kings and how then the prophets sort of balance out on some of that. Okay? But today I want to really summarize and get you to know what David accomplished and why it's important not only to us but to the Jewish people. Okay? First of all, <clears throat> One of his um, most enduring remembrances, at least for the Jewish people, were the uniting of all of the tribes. Remember the twelve tribes of Jacob? They each had their own territory. They each had their own internal governing uh, structure. And that 
really wasn't working to the benefit of God and God's plan of salvation. And so it was really God who brought the 12 tribes or the people of Israel together uh, under King David. And it was important to them as well as to God and his plan because it gave the Jewish people identity. This is what they wanted. They wanted to be like the other nations. And as I said last week, instead of going out to the other nations as a united uh, community, a loving community reflecting the teachings of Christ, they didn't want that. They made themselves an exclusive community, and yet at the same time, they wanted to be like the other nations, having a king at their head who could fight their battles. Remember, this was a time of either you fought or you got annihilated. Uh, it was a time when people had to defend themselves uh, because territories were being overrun by the nearest powerful neighbor. Okay. So, David was the one that actually did that. Saul, his predecessor, uh, did not accomplish that to the degree that he should have done. He started out fine, but unfortunately fell down on the job uh, uh, rather quickly. Okay. But David did a much better job. He still didn't complete all of the conquests that was set out by Joshua many, many years before. And a lot of that was just never completed. Um, the one thing that he did do, finally, was, as Scripture tells us, after becoming king, he served in the city of Hebron, uh, which is about you know, roughly 20 miles south of Jerusalem for seven years and seven months. Now why uh, seven years and seven months seems to be a very specific time period and yet to the Jewish people you have to remember that seven was a very important sacred number. All right, so we don't know whether that was an actual uh, time period or did it have another reference if it had another reference, which it most likely did, uh, the significance has been lost. We really don't know. But anyways, uh, after conquering Judah, um, Jerusalem from the Jebusites, remember the Jebusites were people that had infiltrated into the area of Jerusalem while the Israelites were still in Egypt. I was going back quite a bit of time, nearly 500 years. And it was one of those things that Joshua and all of his successors should have done, uh, and Saul should have done, but it didn't. It uh, remained to be left to David to conquer the Jebusites and therefore Jerusalem. David then made Jerusalem the center of all Judaism. Prior to this, there were um, little temples, synagogues, uh, worshipping places throughout Israel. 
You might have come across the phrase, the high places. The high places were really <laughs> those sites of worship, but they were worshiping pagan gods. They were not worshiping the God of Israel. Uh, the high places was a significant place of worship, but it was worshiping the pagan gods, which was going on later, not so much at the time of um, David and Solomon, but later on it became significant, particularly in the north. And the whole story of Ahab and Jezebel is rather interesting, but their death uh, was also interesting. I won't spoil it for you because I think you should get into it just to understand the significance of that story. But David then, once he conquered Jerusalem, made it the center of all worship. And he dismantled any temples or temporary temples that were built anywhere else. And therefore, after that time period, Jerusalem became the center and the only place where an authorized temple could be. Now, again, we're getting a little ahead. Later on, the synagogue system developed, but that remained for a long period of time um, outside the, the realm of Judaism. Uh, the priestly class that developed much, much later um, really had no beginning. There were priests, yes, uh, who served, and you might say that uh, Solomon, not, uh, not Solomon, I'm sorry, uh, Samuel was both a priest and a prophet in a way, but not in the same level uh, as priests later on. After the Babylonian captivity, the priestly class developed into the ruling class because there was no king. Uh, so priests at different times in Judaism had different roles, different significance, and much different powers. So we had to kind of understand what time of period, uh, or what period you're talking about when you talk about the role of, of the priest and who they were. Okay. Uh, we already talked uh, quite a bit about David uh, finding the Ark of the Covenant and bringing it back into its proper prominence. The Ark of the Covenant, as you would call, was captured by the Philistines and uh, shoved around from uh, town to town. And finally, because of the uh, number of problems that it brought to those various towns, they wanted to get rid of it and return it to uh, the Jewish people and put it on a, uh, a cart and sort of headed the uh, oxen or, or cows or whatever it was that were drawing the cart back to Jerusalem to uh, 
David. But remember the covenant, I mean the Ark of the Covenant was housed in a tent all during the time that the people were wandering in the desert and up until the time of King David who wanted to build a temple. And God said no. That was for his predecessor. God wanted David to accomplish a number of other things, primarily to build a dynasty uh, that is a, a it's referred to as a house. He doesn't, I don't mean a dwelling place, a house in this uh, vernacular is really a dynasty or a family um, of descendants. And that was his role. He had some other things to accomplish also. Uh, the thing that is most important to the Jewish people is the fact that he became uh, a symbol of a strong, perfect leader in spite of his faults and failings. So David was to be the epitome of strength, uh, leadership and obedience to God. Now, he fell down several times, but God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen people who have uh, a questionable background. There are many saints, there are many important people of the Old Testament that had questionable backgrounds, and why? You all really wonder why. Well, first of all, I think there isn't anybody that's truly perfect except Christ himself and his mother. Um, so everyone else has a sort of background of some kind, some more than others. But it is the sinner who comes around finally to realizing his sin or his failings and has a deep sense of humility who becomes the best servant of God. And finally, David realized, particularly after his um, relationship with Bathsheba, to have really remorse, not only of what he did there, but some of his other uh, exploits, you might say. <clears throat> Let's go, if you will, turn your Bibles into Psalms, Psalm 51. Now, I'm not saying that this was written by David, but it is certainly a meditation on his problem, because after the priest Nathan brought to David's attention the seriousness of his failings, uh, David gets into and has remorse. And this psalm, again, may not necessarily have been written by him, but I think it's a reflection on his um, you know, his fault and his uh, sorrow. Have mercy on me, God, 
in your goodness, in your abundant compassion, blot out my offense, wash away all my guilt, and from my sin cleanse me. For I know my offense, and my sin is always before me. Against you alone have I sinned. I have done such evil in your sight, that you are just in your sentence, blameless when you condemn. True, I was born guilty, a sinner, even my mother conceived me. Still, you insist on sincerity of heart. In my inmost being, teach me wisdom. Cleanse me with hyssop, that I may be pure, and wash me. Make me whiter than snow. Let me hear sounds of joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn away your face from my sin, and blot out all my guilt. A clean heart create for me. Renew in me a steadfast spirit. Do not drive me from your presence, nor take me from your Holy Spirit. Restore my joy in your salvation, and restrain me in a willing, with a willing spirit. I will teach the wicked your ways, that sinners may return to you. Rescue me from death, O God, my saving God, that my tongue may praise your healing power. Open my lips, my Lord, my mouth will proclaim your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, and a burnt offering you would not accept. My sacrifice, then, Lord, is a broken spirit. O God, do not spurn a broken and humble heart. The last stanza of this was probably added by someone else, because, and I'll explain that in a minute, Make Zion prosper in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will be pleased with proper sacrifice and burnt offerings and holocausts. Then bullocks will be offered on your altar. The reason I say that that last standard was added by someone else is because the walls of Jerusalem had not been destroyed yet. Okay. They weren't destroyed until much later. So this was probably written later by somebody who wanted this particular uh, request from God. And the remaining part of that, and then you will be pleased with proper sacrifice, burnt offerings and holocaust, and so forth and so on. Right. But Psalm 51 is one of the greatest uh, of the penitential psalms. And I want to spend more time on the psalms uh, later on, but for now this is uh, somewhat important because, as I said, this is a reflection of, of David on his uh, sin in the Bathsheba event. Okay. But the psalms, and particularly this one, it can be and should be used as an act of contrition for each of us because it expresses sincere sorrow for sin and a promise of restitution and remission. Okay. So I would suggest that you mark this particular psalm for something uh, 
to be read frequently in your prayers, as all of the psalms should be. Now, it's interesting that out of 150 psalms, there are only seven that are considered as penitential psalms. The psalms were not written as prayers. They were written uh, for, well, several other reasons. I don't want to get into that right now because I want to spend more time on the Psalms and some of the other literature that we won't be getting into as part of the history of Judaism, but because it came from Judaism and it is more prevalent and more useful in Christian liturgy, liturgies and prayer life than it is in Jewish prayer life. Okay. Yes? Am I misreading this or is this like kind of really pointing to Christ when he's saying you don't, you do not want very off things and are they writing this not knowing what they're saying? No. The meaning of and you and you've got a good point. Uh, Mike is asking the the question is is this really uh, a statement of faith? Um, and the point that I think should be made here is that without sincere humility and remorse for sin, all of your uh, prayers, uh, you're going to communion, uh, you're going to mass, is of no value unless you really have uh, a sense of remorse and failings for your sins. God and Jesus has said in his in the Gospels that without a sincere heart of humility and sorrow then all of your offerings of prayers and sacrifices are of no value because it just shows that you're offering something but on the uh, on the uh, once you get past the offering part you're going back to a, a simple way of life and we can't do that and have it be accepted and Christ has told us that in so many, many ways. So before you go, for example, when you go up to communion, what do you do? I, I really try to cover my eyes or close my eyes because I don't like to see people going up to communion. Of course, on my part, that's probably being somewhat judgmental, but I go up to, I see people going up to communion, and you can tell they haven't the slightest idea of knowing what they're doing. And they'll take the host, pop it in their mouth, and go back, and I've seen people shake hands and, you know, greet others as they're going back from the altar uh, to their seat. Which means that they're not giving a thought to what they have just done. They have welcomed the body of Christ into their mind and their heart and their body. When you have a friend 
a good close friend come to your door, you just open the door and then walk away and let them come in without saying anything to them? I hope not. But don't you say, hello, it's good to see you, and how's the family, and you know, so forth and so on. You greet them, do you not? That's what you should be doing when you receive the sacrament of the Eucharist. You should be greeting God, because God himself, in the form of bread and wine, is coming into your heart. Not just spiritually, but physically. And so you should really be opening your mind and heart in a way of greeting. Not just popping the host into your mouth and forgetting what you've just done. And yet so many people do that. Or at least appear to do that. And for those of you who are Eucharistic ministers, I'm sure you've all seen that where people come up and you know that they don't have the slightest idea of knowing what they're really doing. How unfortunate. Yes, Madge? Uh, do I do something wrong? I don't drink the wine, but I go up and bow. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. Um, and and I, I don't want you to answer this question, but you've got to answer it to yourself. Why do you not drink the wine? Don't say anything. Yeah. But that's something that you should think about. Now, for years prior to Vatican II, we did not receive, or the precious blood was not given to the congregation. And that's okay if you have a good reason for not receiving uh the wine, the precious blood, that's okay. Well, I was taught in RCA that when you take the wafer, you're still taking the body and the blood. That's right. It is. God is equal in both species. The bread and the wine. But the wine is, I mentioned, is, as we've said before, the life of the person is in the blood more so than in the body. In this case, sacramentally, God is equal in both the bread and the wine. So, but the wine is supposed to remind us of the sacrifice that Christ went through for us. For us as individuals. Yes, Vince? You can not receive the host, but just the blood. Would be the same thing. Yes, yes. Uh, and for people who have problems with wheat, um, they can just consume the wine without the host, and they have still received the body and blood of Christ. Yes. Uh, but I would recommend that you consider taking both the wine, the, the bread, and the wine, the consecrated body of Christ and the blood. All right. It is a way of remembrance of what Christ did in sacrificing his body and blood for us. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, 
the Mel Gibson movie, which I think is magnificent, uh, there is a scene that after Christ, the figure of Christ in the story, is flawed and beaten with whips. He has lost a great deal of blood. Uh, Pilate's wife brings towels to Mary, the mother of God, and Mary Magdalene to uh, soak up the blood that was spilled around the pillar. It is not something that is actually biblical. There is no way of knowing. This is something that was added by the writers of that story. But I think what it does is shows that the blood is precious and should not be wasted. Otherwise, you see, if in today's society you saw a pool of blood like that, the first thing you do is get the hose and squirt it away, uh, which would be a common way of thinking. In that movie, they wanted to emphasize that the blood should not be wasted. Now, what they did by soaking it up, I have no idea, <clears throat> and there isn't anything to speculate on, and so we won't do that. But it's important to remember, don't waste an opportunity to receive the body and blood of Christ. Yes. But I think Maggie's point about bowing to the precious blood is important that if you have the flu or something like that and you're not able to receive, you still want to reverence the precious blood. Yes. And I think that's something that I go to St. Rose and more and more people are doing now is that if they're not able to or they wish not to receive the precious blood, they're bowing at least, so they're acknowledging their, their reverence. And, and that's, that's very important, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. <clears throat> yes, there may be legitimate reasons. You may be taking medication that does not uh, go well with, with any alcohol, even in this case. All right. Uh, and bowing is an act of reverence, acknowledging the importance and that you realize the importance of the bread, of the of the uh, wine. Uh, yes, sir. I, I'm a member of the uh, Eastern Rite churches, mm -hmm. and I'm, uh, I'm a member of Holy Wisdom of the Christ the King Retreat uh, Center. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is our tradition to receive the uh, body and blood of Christ together. And the, you put your head back and the priest puts it on a spoon and just drops it in. Oh. So, uh, there's, you know, there's, you're not touching the spoon or anything. Mm -hmm. and that's been our tradition. I mean, I grew up in that tradition. Well, that's fine. There's no, nothing wrong with that. Uh, and in fact, actually, there's a little bit more effort involved there. And I think people who, uh, receive communion, the Eucharist, in that manner, uh, have to spend a wee bit more time in thinking about what they're doing. Now, I go to a Slavic church when I go to visit my uh, sister in Michigan, which I do once a year. Thank God it's only once a year. 
Anyways. The church or your sister? <laughs> <laughs> I won't answer that one. Um, the Slavic church does it slightly different. Communion is distributed by the priest or deacon only. No Eucharistic ministers. No women on the altar. Uh, the host is dipped into the wine by the priest or the deacon and then placed on your tongue. No in the hand. Alright. And uh, that's fine. Particularly for people who have colds or something. This way there's, there's no contact. Alright. But there may be other reasons why you cannot receive the precious blood of Christ. And there's nothing wrong with that. Alright. But I think your way is very interesting too. It requires a little bit more thought. Uh, hopefully. Okay. Let's get back to King David though. Okay. King David is also, uh, honored in many ways because it is thought that he has written all of the Psalms. Uh, and that's very, very unlikely. As I just pointed out in Psalm 51, if all of that, particularly the last stanza, was part of the original, it couldn't have been written by David because the walls had not uh, been destroyed uh, at that time. But also, uh, there are a number of other psalms that indicate that they could not have been written by David because they reflect incidents that didn't happen until long afterward. Uh, But that's not important, although some people, in fact, this uh, Bible right here starts out with chapter 1. It says uh, the psalm in itself is titled the Miserere, uh, a prayer of repentance, uh, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after his affair with Bathsheba. Well, you know, that's, again, uh, even the way that is written, it would tell you that it was certainly not written by David. Okay. Um, so, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, we might say that, yes, David may have composed some. We know that there is, in Scripture, a very long uh, a passage there that appears to be the same as a psalm, but is not listed as one. And we don't know exactly how the psalms came together uh, and why there is exactly 150. If you go to the Hebrew scriptures, um, there's 150, but you know, they're not in the same order as they are in the Septuagint uh, version of the Old Testament. Uh, but it makes no difference. They're all beautiful prayers. And we'll get more into that at a later date. In many ways, uh, David is looked upon as a symbol of what the Messiah, that is the anointed one of God, uh, would be like. The word Messiah is not used in the Old Testament. Now, the idea of a Messiah is there in many ways, but is referred to 
uh, as the anointed one of God. And when you translate that back through the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek, the Latin, and into various languages, it comes out in Greek, Christos, and in Latin, Christos, and in English, Christ. Uh, but the word Christ or Messiah is not used in the Old Testament at all. But David is looked upon as the image or the person that they would like the Messiah to be. So after the concept of the Messiah was developed around the 3rd or 4th century B.C., after the idea that um, since the end of the Babylonian captivity, the Jewish people were never sovereign rulers of the promised land. They were always under the domination of someone else, uh, from the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. All right? So they realized that the promised land had to be somewhere else and not uh, the land of Israel. So they began to think about where, and of course the idea eventually came to them that the true promised land would be back in heaven with God himself. That concept took a long time to be figured out, developed, and still was never accepted by all of the Jewish people then or today. You have the Hasidic Jews that do not believe in the afterlife, and uh, they are often uh, depicted as those fellows that wear the long black coat and the hat and uh, the long hair and beard. Right? You don't see that too much out here in California, but in New York and up and down the East Coast, it's rather prominent. Okay. But the symbol, the appearance, the whole idea of what David did was what they wanted the Messiah to be like with the principal objective of getting rid of the Romans. So their whole idea of the Messiah was somebody who could come uh, to her and rout the Romans and restore Israel to prominence. Well, that didn't happen until 1948 through the good graces of Harry Truman and the United Nations. But you can see, I think, the importance that David has uh, not only at that uh, the time of his life, but down through all of uh, Jewish history and even to today. Any questions about David? Well, yes, in a way, see, many of those books were destroyed at the time of the Babylonian captivity. And so a lot of Jewish history had to be reconstructed afterwards. And that is why they took all of these histories somewhere around the 5th century B.C. And uh, the priest Ezra is uh, given credit, we're not certain of that, but 
we believe that he either did it on his own or headed up a small group of people that brought a lot of those things together uh, that had been either destroyed because all of the records, uh, the genealogy records and so forth that were kept in the temple were destroyed by the Babylonians. So that'll teach you not to ask questions anymore. <laughs> Going back to our previous question, were you talking about Absalom? Absalom was David's favorite. Uh-huh. Uh, and there was a big feud between them. And Ad, uh, Ad, Adonijah was also a favorite. And that was why it was, uh, you know, it's still questionable. We don't understand all of the details. And scripture is just really not very clear in a lot of that. There are a lot of those kinds of things throughout these two books. Uh, of, well, four books really. Samuel and Kings. Remember, when they were originally written, they were only one book each. Samuel and Kings. They were not split until uh, somewhere around the second or third century when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek and they would not all fit on one scroll. So they were split into two simply for that reason. So if you have any question this, <clears throat> why there are one and two kings and one and two uh, Samuel and one and two chronicles, it is because when they were translated from Hebrew into Greek, uh, you've got to remember that the Hebrew alphabet did not have any vowels in it. In order to pronounce many of those words, they had to add vowels. The Greek had the vowels, so obviously that expanded the physical number of characters for each of the passages in those two books. And therefore, the length of the book uh, got expanded considerably simply because it was translated from Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek. Very simple reason, but sometimes it's mysterious because it isn't explained. Let's go on to some of that of Solomon. And it's interesting because we don't hear the Jewish people honoring and referring to Solomon near as much as they did to David. Solomon was a much more uh, flamboyant ruler. First of all, he didn't need to conquer, he didn't need to go to war near as much as David did because that had been accomplished. He did have some battles, yes. But as I said before, it was a time of either fight or uh, get run over. Uh, and so there were constant battles and wars for turf, for territory, for recognition. Recognition, excuse me. Uh, and, and just for power in general. Okay. And that is kind of the, the way it was at that time. Um, he recognized and 
got everyone else to recognize the importance of the centralization of the kingship in his under his uh, reign. And so he had a rather peaceful uh, 40 years reign. Again, 40 years. Uh, we're not certain exactly the length of time. He built a great palace for himself and the first temple for the Jewish people and the first permanent home of the Ark of the Covenant. The, there's many uh, pictures of what the temple looked like. It was a long building, approximately a hundred, um, well, there's different uh, references. They said a hundred cubits. A uh, cubit was approximately the length of the average man's elbow to the tip of his fingers. That's what a cubit was. Approximately 18 inches. Okay. And so they used 18 inches in today's measurements as an approximation of what a cubit was. So if it was 100 cubits, then it would have been approximately 150 feet long. The temple, that is. Alright. And uh, roughly 20 cubits wide or 30 feet wide. You can go pretty much like one and a half times. All right. The temple was divided into three different parts. You had the main court, then you had an inner court, and then you had the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, if you recall in our churches years ago, we had the nave, which was the outer part where the people sat, then you had the sanctuary, which was inside the altar railing. Remember, for you uh, older people, the altar railing. And then you had the tabernacle, which always sat on the altar in the back of the, or, or against the back wall. Well, of course, after Vatican II, that changed. Um, and now the entire church is called the sanctuary. And as it should be, the tabernacle is generally removed from the altar. And anyone want to know why? <laughs> it was deemed by the fathers of Vatican II that nothing should be on the altar at the time the Mass was being celebrated except the utensils needed for the holding of the bread and the wine to be. Uh, now, of course, that was deemed to be slightly impractical because most priests could not read uh, or remember all of the readings uh, so they had to have a book there, and then some priests uh, had to have a stand in order to have the book uh, in a position that was easier to read. So you do have some exceptions, obviously. All right. But if you'll notice that in most churches today, the candles are not on the altar. They are on a stand alongside the altar. Okay. 
Years ago, it used to be if you had two candles, it was a low mass, and if you had three candles on each side, it was a high mass. We don't have that any longer. All of the masses are of the same level or equal. Well, acrobatically, too, they turn the altar around. Yeah, right. Yes. Priest people, so if the tabernacle was there, it would have been kind of in the way. Yes. Yes. But more importantly, the tabernacle required or should have special honor or place of its own, which it does now in all churches. And nothing of, you know, there's no uh, remember, there used to always be a crucifix on the altar. There is not any longer. It is the whole idea that the Mass is self-contained ceremony of itself and of the highest rank of all ceremonies. So there is uh, nothing to be on the altar to interfere with that. Okay. I don't know why we got into that. But. Okay. Uh, Solomon did a, a number of other things. Uh, the whole story of the Queen of Sheba, I think, emphasizes his importance in uh, wisdom. He is often attributed to being the writer of the Proverbs and a number of other, other portions of uh, Scripture. Uh, that is also questionable, but Nevertheless, he did write a number of important documents and passages of Scripture. So we'll just leave it at that. Uh, Solomon did a number of good things. Unfortunately, he did a number of other things that God was not pleased with. Now, there's, I have to bring this up, but uh, I'd rather not. The fact that Solomon had 700 wives. Uh, before you, yes, before you even uh, try to swallow that one, uh, remember Jewish people love to exaggerate. And, uh, you know, if you got beyond seven, I still think that would be an exaggeration. Uh, but it's easier when you're writing these things down to stick a couple zeros, you know, after that. So I, I would not take that too seriously. But he did uh, do a, a number of things that uh, emphasized his position, his authority, uh, and demonstrated his uh unusual pride. Um, he built the temple with slave labor. He did a number of other things like with forced or slave labor, uh, which today would not have been uh, honored as it was. So David or Solomon did a number of good things, but he also did a number of things that were not uh, acceptable. It certainly would not be acceptable in today's way of thinking, but we can't judge or make judgments uh, based on today's uh, mores or uh, values. Okay. It was Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who succeeded him. And we'll get into that next week. Um, but some of the things I'd like to read, and I get a, 
a very good book that I would certainly recommend. This is called The uh, Dictionary Concordance to the New American Bible. I've talked about what I think of this Bible is probably the best I have. I have several Bibles, but this is actually the best uh, because of the additional information on it. And this is a, sort of a companion to that. It is more like a dictionary, but it talks about, uh, explains names and places and people. Uh, it does not go into Bible passages, uh, but it does reference them at times. I would strongly recommend that you get a copy of this book, which runs 8 or $10, depending on where you buy it. Uh, but it is extremely helpful. Let me just read some of this uh, stuff uh, regarding Solomon. And I'm doing it solely that you don't have to uh, get in too deeply in the uh, Book of Kings. Solomon, son and successor of David as king of Judah and Israel. He was born at Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah, and at his birth had been called Jedidiah. Can you imagine calling a little kid Jedidiah? <laughs> that is, beloved of the Lord. His succession to the throne was not easy, and it was not easily explained either. Uh, Solomon <clears throat> had an important rival in Ajaniah, the eldest son of David, who was counting on the support of Joab, um, general of David's army, and Abathar, the priest. I won't go into all of that. Um, but David decided for Solomon and gave instructions that he should be immediately anointed by Zadok the king. Now, there were, were several other kings, you might say, in the uh, vicinity of Jerusalem, at, or rather, of uh, Judea or Israel at the time. The new reign was started with revenge. David left to Solomon the task of settling some accounts for which he, David, for one reason or another, had failed to do and had instructed Joab uh, as the uh, to execute uh, a number of those failings. I'm trying to skip a lot of this stuff. Solomon also lost no time in liquidating his arrival at Adonijah and is replacing the priest Abathar, who had supported Adonijah and his faithful priest Zadon. Well, even before he had Joab executed, he appointed... <laughs> oh, this goes on and on. Let me get into some of the more uh, interesting parts here. Solomon reaped the fruits and seeds of David that David had planted in riches, power, and splendor. All David's military exploits and political maneuvers now are paid off. With Solomon's reign, Israel reached a summit of glory she was never more to enjoy throughout her history. All right, important point. With, with Solomon's reign, Israel reached a summit of glory 
she was never more to enjoy throughout her history. The description of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings 3 to 10, chapters 3 to 10, is full of admiration and enthusiasm. The negative aspects from the religious point of view are left for Kings chapter 11. But other equally negative aspects were to come to the fore immediately after the death of Solomon, and that is in his son Rehoboam. Solomon is above all presented as a wise king and judge. The celebrated judgment of Solomon has parallels in all ancient literature and so must not be taken as history. It does not, however, illustrate uh, Solomon's characteristics of perception and wisdom in the exercise of his judicial function. Remember the old story about the two women that tried to claim uh, the baby as theirs each and Solomon says, all right, we'll split the baby in two and you can each have half. And so the real mother, not wanting to do that out of love for the child, is willing to give him up. And Solomon realizes that she is the real mother, the other is a pretender, and so he does give her. And this was done purposely, not with the expected intention of uh, splitting the boy in half, but uh, finding out which of the two women was the true mother. Okay. And so that's often used as a reference for the wisdom of Solomon. Okay. Solomon did honor his name, which is derived from shalom, that is the Jewish word for peace. His was an interregnum between the wars of conquest of his father and the wars of survival of his successors, as I have mentioned before. The earlier half of his reign was fortunate in that neither the great world powers, Egypt and Assyria, was well, was, was well, oh, wait a minute, I'm, the type is so small I'm losing my place here. Uh, let's see. The earlier half of his reign was fortunate in that neither the success uh, of the great world powers, that is Egypt and Assyria, was stirring. Solomon could therefore concentrate on international trade as well as administration. And he did bring the city of Jerusalem into great prominence in world trade. He substituted for the old tribal organization a new distribution of people and territories according to criteria that were inspired by the necessities of his political and physical administration. During his administration, the kingdom achieved the boundaries that were to remain but an ideal and an inspiration for successive reigns. Judah and Israel lived in security every man under his vine or under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, as long as Solomon lived. And that is why it was always said afterwards that the time of David and Beersheba, David and Solomon, excuse me, uh, 
I have Hedy Lamar on my mind. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, time of David and Solomon was known as the golden uh, era of Judaism. There emerged in sharp detail from the account is the development of commerce and industry and the building of enterprises of the king. He imported horses and chariots from Egypt and Cilicia and mustered a force of 1,400 war chariots and 12,000 horses. Again, be careful of numbers. Which he distributed in the chariot cities and near the capital, Jerusalem. With collaboration of Hiram, Solomon built a fleet of uh, fleet at Izan Gerber, I can't even pronounce it, to set up uh, commercial relationships with Oprah. That's uh, another town in, in the south. Uh, so on and so forth. Outstanding among Solomon's buildings, building undertaking, was the construction of the temple. He also constructed at Jerusalem a splendid palace and fortified numerous other cities. All of these undertakings were undoubtedly made possible by the riches that had flowed from the commercial and industrial enterprises of the king. The author of One Kings evidently exaggerates, we've known that before, when he states the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedars, as numerous as the sycamores and of the foothills. Hmm. It is also necessary to add these the annual tributes of the vassal countries uh, since the time of David. The works, however, would not have been possible if it were not for the perfectly organized forced labor system imposed by Solomon. Even in the enthusiastic account of the sacred author can be sensed the burden that this placed on a poor people, which was to explode with violence at Solomon's death. When Rehoboam went to Shechem to take over the kingdom of Israel, he heard them say, Your father put on us a heavy yoke. If you now lighten the harsh service and the heavy yoke your father imposed on us, we will serve you. Rehoboam refused the request, and so Israel and Judah came to a split that was to last until the end of the kingdoms. And that was in 722 B.C. with the Babylonian, uh, with the Assyrian conquest of the north, and 587 with the Babylonian conquest in the south. The reign of Solomon brought to conclusion the assimilation of the Israelite monarchy to the oriental type of monarchy of neighboring countries. Solomon drew especially on Egypt to give his kingdom effective administration. Nor did he hesitate to gather to himself a harem which in number and quality uh, showed the splendor of his reign. In other words, only trophy wives. <laughs> I'm not going to read anymore. I think you got the idea. Okay. 
he was a great man, but he had a lot of great faults at the same time. And you'll find that even though the roughly 80 years between the two reigns of David and Solomon were considered the golden age of Jerusalem, it sort of went downhill from there. Uh, uh, it was David who united all of the tribes into a united country, gave them identity, but it was Solomon's son who split them back into two major factions, uh, simply because he was not a strong individual, and he was, uh, he just didn't want to bother uh, with governing such a, a vast number of people, and so he let the north slip away and become separate kingdom. Uh, confusingly enough, the king, the first king of the north, Rehoboam became, that is Solomon's son, became the king of the south, or of Judah, but Jeroboam, you know, and, and if you talk about Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north, uh, that's a tongue twister. But that's the way it started out. And we'll get more into that next week. Uh, because it's a very interesting period of time. But as you read the second book of Kings, you will see that most of the kings, and there are, I believe were about 50 between the north and the south, almost all of them were evil, with the exception, very few exceptions. You had uh, Josiah and Hezekiah, and a couple others, but not very many of those 50 uh, were good. And even Josiah only lasted two years um, because people didn't like what he had to say. But the whole idea is you've got to be careful when you read that because at the same time you should be reading, although it's a little too much, but you should be reading the prophets. Because the prophets came in to balance the evil. See, like I said, God could have wiped them out and started over again. But that would have only gone through some of the same problems that were already gone through. And so by bringing in the prophets, he could have people that were speaking for him to the people in general and helping to see, get them to see that what their leaders were trying to, what their leaders were doing and telling them was wrong. And yet, the prophets were all killed by their own people, that is the rulers, not the everyday people, uh, but the rulers because they didn't like what the prophets said. It worked against their power and their prestige and their jobs, etc. But keep in mind that there was, even all of this evil was going on, there was a lot of good going on at the same time. And we'll get into that next week. Any questions? Excuse me. Yes, yes. Towards the end of his life, he 
sort of vacillated between worshiping the one true God and a number of pagan idols. Yes. And that was part of the influence of having a number of wives who were not uh, Jewish. Yes. All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that this was a lot of minutiae detail, but it's also important to understand, for us to understand, how and why David particularly and Solomon had such prominent roles in your plan of salvation through the Jewish people. Help us now to understand as we go forward that the prophets were also sent in by you to help balance the evil that was going on from the other kings that followed. So we ask your blessing on our efforts. May your Holy Spirit shine on us as we go through some of the troubled times. But help us then to understand that you are always there for us to lean on. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things.